Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, April 4th. Well, I went to a concert last night. First one in 33 months. My first indoor one in what's longer than that, because a lot of those shows were at Bud Stage in the summer of 2019. Remember 2019? Does anyone remember laughter? Anyway, uh, we chatted a little bit about that, seeing uh, OMD at History, and uh, Mike Schreiner from the Green Party on the show as well, the Ontario leader, about where he wants politics to go, where he thinks our province should go. And we do talk about um, some of the environmental goals we probably all have that have been put on hold via the pandemic. Lots coming up on Toronto Today, and it starts now. Let me start here. Um, I did not think that uh, we'd be sort of having a localized, they often say in journalism or uh, broadcasting, lead local, localize the lead. And sometimes something is so big that you know people are going to be talking about it. And I shrug my shoulders at that and think the goal is, you know, keep talk radio interesting, have an interesting conversation. When you go to a dinner party, you want interesting conversations. You don't want to chit-chat about the weather. You don't want to chit-chat about, oh, where'd you get that blouse, Lucy? Like, like you want in... Maybe that's interesting. You want interesting... <laughs> Depends who Lucy is. Uh, you want interesting stuff. And um, we talked about it yesterday. Two things that that dinner party and that backyard barbecue don't really have very often. A lot of conversations about Middle Eastern politics. Probably not. And a lot of conversations about pro-life vis-a-vis pro-choice. This probably doesn't happen, even though people have opinions. Why? That you're not going to change very people's, uh, many people's minds in one evening. No one gets in the car and goes, you know what, Lucy, in addition to that discussion about your blouse, I've kind of seen the light on this whole uh, abortion thing. I No, like either way, that doesn't usually happen in the car. Think about COVID in the last 27 months. How many times you've been wrong? How many times you changed your mind? How many times you think... Um, we're not as, as worried as we should be. We're more worried uh, than we should be. We got doctors that are really practical about this. We got doctors that are wacky about this. Hi, Pete Uni. When are you leaving for Oxford? I still see you on my television. What is going on here? Anyway, um, so I thought about this and, and yeah, to localize the lead, I was a little bit surprised that it came around. Now, I understand doing news stories on it. What could this mean? for um, abortion rights and the right for a woman to choose in Canada. I saw a video last night on Global News National with Donna Friesen where uh, an, an abortion uh, advocate in um, or a choice advocate, we'll call it in the in, in Alberta, she's named uh, Autumn Reinhardt Simpson. And she made an interesting point that I hadn't thought about. I haven't been involved in the process. I told you that yesterday. I also shared the story where um, a girlfriend and I, probably I'm 25 and she's 22, and, and we thought she was late by probably eight, nine days. And so it's on your mind every day. You're like, I'm not ready to be a father yet. I'm trying to think, when did I become a father? At age 34 and a half, I wasn't ready at 25. I wasn't ready um, mentally, emotionally. I didn't have the maturity. Uh, I really hadn't planted roots. I wasn't doing the job I really wanted to do yet. Um, so there were a lot of big factors, right? I was not ready to tell uh, my parents, and I wasn't sure this person was the person to spend 40, 50 years or eternity with or death till death do his part, one of those two. Eternity's longer, right? I think it is. I think we've established that. Autumn Reinhardt Simpson made this point in a global news story yesterday. She, so I said she's in Alberta, and it's something I hadn't thought of with access. A lot of times I'm just kind of driving around the province, picking people up or uh, things like that. So uh, that takes time, that takes gas, that takes food, 
that takes childcare. You've just got all of these logistics to think about that can present really severe barriers, especially for Indigenous people and especially Indigenous people living outside of the city. So, look, Ontario might feel a little bit different. It might, because there's 15 million people here and we're speaking to you. I mean, we're in the heart, eh, sort of the heart. We're close to the water. It's great. But we're in the, we're in the biggest city in the country. We're, one of, we're in one of the great international cities. What I love, we wanted to put Toronto's name in the show. I don't want my, I don't care about my name. I don't care about blah, blah, blah. Here's the guy in the morning, blah, blah. No, we, wanted to, we want to call it Toronto today because Toronto is, is, we're all in love with Toronto. We can criticize it. We can, we can rip on it a little bit. We can say we want this to be better and that to be better. But I think about Alberta and what, um, what Autumn says there. There are three clinics to get a uh, end-of-life procedure done um, in, in ter- or, uh, to get it, that done in Alberta. 4.3 million people live there to terminate a pregnancy. That's a far better phrase. Um, to terminate a pregnancy in your first trimester, second trimester, or in in terrible, awful, tragic cases where the baby's health, the mother's health will be affected uh, later on. 4.3 million. There's three places to go. So you can imagine, if you've been to Alberta, it takes you a long time to go anywhere. Once you leave Calgary, where are we going? It's going to take you a few hours. Edmonton, Red Deer, it's going to t- Lethbridge, going to take you a few hours to get to where you need to go. So access is one of those issues, okay? And it always will be in the United States. Remember about Roe v. Wade in the United States right now. If it gets overturned, they're not banning abortions. There will be states that still have it, and, and they can't stop you from going Uh, from Mississippi or Alabama or Florida or Texas from going somewhere else to get it. But access matters, and and providing uh, those services do matter at the end of the day. Here's the other thing I was thinking about um, that really, really irritates me, and I thought about it yesterday. The Supreme Court, we don't have anything quite like it. You can't name a Canadian Supreme Court justice because it feels like there isn't politics in the Canadian Supreme Court. There's not a lot of politics even in the Canadian Senate. But there's tons of it, and it's uh, it's obviously the most compelling part of the midterm elections. Sometimes on the night of presidential elections, not the not the last two times out, Trump v. Biden and Trump v. Hillary. Sometimes it's the most compelling part of 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 an election race. The two times Obama won in a landslide, it's pretty compelling to see who holds a certain Senate seat and who doesn't. But I thought about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Um, Five months into the pandemic, September 18th, 2020, and uh, she passed away at age 87. 87. She was an associate justice of the Supreme Court from 1993. Bill Clinton appointed her. Uh, She made it through the Senate confirmation process until 2020. I'm mad at Ruth Bader Ginsburg because you don't have to stay on until you die. You don't have to do that work, if you will, until your last dying breath. And she chose to, okay, chose to. Um, first Jewish woman on the court, second woman after Sandra Day O'Connor, Ronald Reagan appointed her in the early 80s. Um, that's, of course, you're breaking ground. And you did it. You did it on the court for 15, 16 years up until 2018. When Barack Obama's still president before 2016, that's the time you get out. Get out. Stop doing this because you risk after eight years of Obama and after a uh, in- incumbent presidency that he was re- obviously elected against John McCain, reelected against Mitt Romney. 
get out while Obama's on board so Obama can nominate somebody. And there was a friendlier House and Senate scenario to get you. You're going to get confirmed. So one thing that infuriates me about Obama is he didn't push hard enough at the time for the current attorney general to get onto the Supreme Court. He just kind of shrugged his shoulders. Was there some obfuscation from Republican senators? Yes, absolutely. But you avoid this potential scenario. If this is what you want, you avoid this potential scenario if Ruth Bader Ginsburg at age 86 gets out of the way. And she didn't do it. And uh, what ended up happening as a result? Amy Coney Barrett appointed to the Supreme Court. Is she qualified? Was she qualified? I don't I don't have the qualifications to talk about her qualifications, but I know this. She's there in essence for one big reason and several smaller ones overturn Roe v. Wade for some reason. And and somehow, some way, Donald Trump fooled all these religious Republicans, fooled all the pro-lifers into thinking that and he knew he needed their votes. So he played them like a violin. Trump played all these people like a violin. Give me the votes. Give me the support. All these evangelical Christians. Do you think Donald Trump has lived like an evangelical Christian his entire life? Do you think Donald Trump is pro-life and not pro-choice? You can't possibly think that, but he knows how to win a race. He knows how to get elected, and he used those people, but they're using him also. He's going to put Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. He's going to put Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. And the biggest thing they can do, overturn Roe v. Wade. Here's the other thing really quick to think about. And I'm going to get to some context later in the show of why this seems to matter in Canada about uh, about access is the idea of where this is going to go with bodily autonomy. I know Kamala Harris made a phenomenal speech last night. And she was basically, she kind of went a bit Greta Thunberg on everybody with the how dare you's. How dare you tell a woman what she can and can't do with her body? How dare you? And that's one thing that stands alone. If that's a standalone point about abortion and making choice, especially early in the pregnancy, where polls obviously show the earlier you make that decision, the more at ease the electorate and people getting polled, the more at ease they're with. But it's going to be a difficult thing to stand there, bald-faced, look voters in the eye who've been told, you have to do this, you need this vaccine here, your five-year-old needs a vaccine, you can't come to a restaurant, they can't go to school, they can't play sports. You're going to be in a tough spot come October when you're campaigning saying, hey, back to bodily autonomy. And you're like, wait a minute, you you didn't give my five-year-old bodily autonomy. You didn't give me autonomy as a parent. You didn't give me autonomy that I asked for in my workplace. Okay, And as a, again, three times a vaccinated person, I understand that that there was a a reason to be part of the collective process here. I understood that. And this wasn't even, you know, I I didn't even feel shoved into complying. I wanted to feel safer. And I felt safer when I got vaccinated. So that matters. But I would not, I, I look back now and we got nowhere to go with mandates. We've got nowhere to go with forcing people at the risk of losing their job or not being able to go here or go there or their kids to go to school. We got nowhere to go with this. We don't have anywhere to go with it. But I think it's going to be really difficult to play the game of American feminism and talk about women who, by the way, the pandemic and a lot of the restrictions landed on their backs 
It landed on their backs, and they know this, and they know who wanted to shut them down and lock them down more than others, Democrats more than Republicans. I see two major issues. Ruth Bader Ginsburg needed to get out of the way while Obama was still president, retire, and not run this right to the goal line, because she did. Okay, she did. Great life, great legacy, RIP, but she did. Okay, this fight is happening right now in part because she couldn't see the bigger picture here and no one clearly could talk her into it. I see that and I see the fact that a lot of women had their backs turned on them by people who used to support them. Feminists turn their backs on women. Women turn their backs on feminists and they're going to I don't know that they can get this resolved in time to keep the Senate or to keep the House. Or to, or to even have a, a, a full audience for what Roe v. Wade means in the next several months. This is Leaders Week on uh, on Toronto Today. We will speak with Andrea Horvat tomorrow. We spoke with Stephen Del Duca uh, yesterday. I'm going to play a clip from that in just a little bit, but I'm very pleased to welcome on uh, the Ontario Green Party leader. He's uh, a great guest, and, and uh, we haven't had him on the show. We need to have him on a lot more, and especially leading up to June 2nd. He is Mike Schreiner. Mike, it's great to have you on. Uh, it'll be great to hear your voice in a second once I stop yapping. Thank, I'm a little excited from being out uh, on the town last night. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure, Greg, and I'm pretty excited too. Our EVs are charged up, and so are the Ontario Greens. <laughs> I, I, I am sure that that's the case. I saw a couple of great EV spots uh, for parking. We're seeing more of those around the city of Toronto. You're probably well aware of this. Oh, absolutely. We're doing our entire tour. I've been touring around the province, north to the north, south, east, and west, all electric, and we'll be doing our entire uh, leaders tour throughout the election campaign electric as well and we're going to save a lot of money doing that and not uh, contribute to climate pollution this has been tough i I think a lot of people for the environment i think a lot about the environment the environment uh, dictates a lot of conversations in the brady household a ton of them as a matter of fact now i would say this the pandemic made us put a lot on hold and i think it made us put environmental progress and concerns on hold when you think about time lost here um yeah maybe there have been fewer cars on the road maybe there's been you know more conservation in that concept but we've ordered a lot more food in you know the mask issue i'm going to get to something on that masks at the bottom of our oceans masks in our landfills i don't think that was something we could have even possibly foreseen two years ago how much environmental damage those have done yeah, you know what, Greg, Greg I, um, there are companies, I've met with an Ontario company that's actually recycling masks, uh, pelletizing them and turning them into uh, products uh, that we use in our everyday lives. And so I think there's a lot of innovation that's going to come out of, you know, this tough time we've been through. And I think when I talk to most Ontarians, they want to emerge with a green and caring recovery. Mm-hmm. The pandemic has revealed the cracks in our systems of care, particularly in our healthcare system, and which is why the Ontario Greens are saying, hey, let's make mental health services in particular available under OHIP. I mean, the housing crisis has reached a breaking point, and our master class plan in delivering affordable housing solutions um, will also help us address the climate crisis because we're saying no more long, expensive, soul-crushing commutes. Let's stop the sprawl. Let's build livable, affordable, connected communities where people can live, work, play, and shop locally. I think that's something that's, you know, a desire that's really come out of the pandemic. And finally, let's have an economic recovery focused on Ontario being a giant global leader in the new climate economy. 
Mike Schreiner is our guest on Toronto Today, uh, uh, Ontario Green Party leader. I want to get to a lot of that sort of work from home, back to the office uh, wrestling match. I know a lot of businesses and uh, and leaders and workers are going through it right now. This is what I saw yesterday. I want to come back to, to the recycling of masks because that's interesting. Uh, an estimated 1.6 billion disposable masks into oceans in 2020. By the end of 21, we've generated 8 million tons of COVID-related plastic waste. Of course, I'm not saying we never should have worn them. Of course, I'm not saying they didn't serve a purpose. But but the idea that some can be recycled um, is encouraging to me. Are these are these disposable masks or the N95s that can be recycled? Drill down on that a bit if you can for our listeners, because that's helpful information. Yeah, sure, Greg. I mean, this is exactly so um, I've met Ontario companies that are recycling masks, turning them into pelletized plastic. And then in one case, uh, I toured a company that's turning that into permeable pavement uh, to help us adapt to the climate crisis because parking lots now can absorb excess water instead of having it run off into our sewer systems, into our lakes and rivers. And this is the kind of innovation that I believe Ontarians can lead in the new climate economy, creating new career and better job opportunities for people to you know, generate the prosperity we need to invest in a high-quality public health care system, public education, and social services. And so that's why I'm excited to be on the campaign trail, because I really want to present Ontarians with the vision of how this province can be the global leader in the new climate economy, help people save money by electrifying our transportation systems, help them save money uh, by retrofitting their homes so they can reduce their, their energy bills. There's a lot of solutions out there. The old mm. parties you know, just aren't offering those solutions. And so I think we need more green MPPs at Queen's Park with new ideas, new solutions to old problems. I want to hit on some of those solutions. You know, people like yourself who've led in terms of, uh, you know, understanding climate change, advocating for uh, a different way of life. You, what, what I think people like you, Mike, have long recognized is the only means of reducing the impact of of plastic is we can't we can't keep throwing them away. This is why we don't take plastic bags to the grocery store anymore. Or try and take eight home when we can avoid it. Straws. I mean, even that was that was a big thing, and it still should be in restaurants. And uh, I know there's there's a lot of talk more talk about banning microplastics and cosmetics. I'm coming back to the mask thing. We can't ban masks, but we got to recognize that geez, it's the same devastating impact. Like I, I feel that sort of pang in my chest when I see it in a, a mask in a grocery store parking lot or I see 20 of them in somebody's garbage. It's we got to factor this into our personal decisions here, don't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Greg. And that's exactly why uh, we need to be ramping up uh, recycling of masks, because obviously masks are an important layer of protection. And, uh, and making sure that we, we have an easy, convenient way for people to put them th- through a recycling stream because we have the technology to do that. And that's where government policy comes in. I mean, you can't put the burden on an individual if there's like no convenient way for them to recycle the mask, even though the technology exists. And so that's why we need government policy to make it easier for people to make those kinds of responsible decisions. So I mentioned I feel some in some way there's a little bit of a wrestling match with working from home, hybrid work, coming back to the office. I think about it with transit. Um, I, I'm, I'm in downtown Toronto because of the time of the show. I, I drive down every day and I, I drive back and I see a good amount of cars on the road. But I know that, um, you know, to, to have a city, a, a really vibrant city, doesn't matter if it's Chicago, New York, Toronto, 
a lot more people need to be back in that city and spending money um, and stopping at those gas stations and going out for lunch and doing all those things. Is there a little bit of a, a dichotomy with with making sure we we conserve fossil fuel working from home and and also making sure cities like Toronto, I'd say Ottawa and Hamilton would be similar cities, London too. They still need to thrive. We can't have vacant downtowns. Is that sort of does that weigh on you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the reasons the Ontario Greens housing affordability strategy is all about building communities where people can live, work, play and shop locally, support those local businesses that are so important to the vibrancy and vitality uh, of our, you know, main streets. And, you know, the only exception I would take with what you said, Greg, mm-hmm. is um, let's not have people stop at the gas stations. I don't want them wasting <laughs> so much money. That's a bad like, example. I okay. It costs people a hundred bucks to fill their car up with gas. Meanwhile, you know, my electric vehicle, I can fill up for five bucks overnight at home and like 15 bucks at a high speed charger. So let's help people uh, save money by getting the big oil out of their wallets, make electric vehicles affordable for them. Also, you're right. We need to get people back on transit. That's why we've called for cutting transit fares in half to make transit Mm -hmm. more affordable for folks. Um, So we have solutions. We have solutions that can tackle the climate emergency and help people save money at the same time. And so we just need to have the political, the politicians at Queens Park, like Ontario Green MPPs, who are going to push forward um, those solutions. I should have said not stopping for gas, but stopping for single-use <laughs> water bottles. I've been a SodaStream consumer for six years. I don't know why they're not paying me to talk about how great their product is and how much <laughs> how much plastic I think I'm saving, but I, I, can't, I can't get enough of this stuff. So when I see single-use plastic water bottles or even pop bottles thrown in the garbage, it drives me crazy. It drives me mad. It probably does you also. Oh, me too, Greg. Now, now you're really yanking my chain here, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we should have a ban on single-use plastics. I mean, I can't tell you how many community cleanups I'm a part of where, you know, half of half the garbage you're picking up are, are, are single-use plastic uh, beverage containers. Mm. And, you know, all that ends up in our oceans. It ends up in our water. It ends up in our bodies then when it ends up in our water. So it's an important public health issue as well as an environmental issue. You grew up in the United States, and I lived in the United States long enough to see both sides of of the healthcare debate. I'm going to ask you this. Is there a conversation to be had? Not necessarily. I I know people hear two-tier healthcare, and they really panic and they get concerned. But the problem in America, as you know, Mike, is is that the bottom drops out a lot faster on people. It drops out on younger people without good jobs, without jobs with benefits. When you lose a job, you're cut right away from from your health care. But is there a conversation at all, I'm going to ask, to an element of privatization, of making the the upper upper class economically contribute a little more? And if they can get a service faster without delaying other services, like I think we've said, we not seen what we're doing exactly as we're doing it the last two years. It's not working for people. Look at all the surgeries delayed. Look at all the backlog of things that we have. There's got to be a better way forward, isn't there? Well, I definitely wanted to adopt the U.S. model. I mean, I've lived over half my life here in Canada and chose to live here because I I love this place. And one of the things I I love about Canada is our publicly funded, public delivered healthcare system. I can tell you in the U.S., I even went through this uh, with a family member who had a chronic uh, illness. And even though we had health insurance, we had to take out significant loans to be able to uh, access health care because our insurance didn't cover all of it. I don't mm-hmm. think Canadians want that. 
Um, I think if wealthy people should contribute a bit more, uh, maybe maybe a small uh, tax increase to contribute to our publicly funded, publicly delivered healthcare system, because there's no doubt that COVID has revealed cracks in the system, especially when it comes to hospital capacity, especially when it comes to paying our frontline healthcare workers the wages they deserve. And so let's invest in that system, because I can tell you, as somebody who's experienced both, I would much rather uh, live in Canada with a public health care system. And I can also tell you as a small business owner, I, it is so nice to know that your small business doesn't have to spend half its time worrying about what kind of health insurance sure. um, uh, product you have for your employees and the cost of that to business because here the public system covers it. If, yeah, that's a big, big factor. Hey, let's have a couple more chats before June 2nd. I'm glad you're running again. I think uh, you're an important voice at Queen's Park, and I want to have more conversations leading up to Election Day. Thanks for making the time for me. Hey, anytime, Greg. You have a great day. Mike Schreiner joining us, uh, Green Party leader. Let me play this clip really quick. Stephen Del Duca was talking about the vaccine mandates for kids yesterday. I thought he made a lot of great points on the show. Here's what yesterday. Here's where I don't know where we go with this explanation. I asked him, I said, okay, it's great to want more kids to be vaccinated. It's great to say that, but I don't know how we make this leap from it's a parental choice to preventing kids from doing more things and being back in school. Here's here's the exchange. There are many conversations about whether that universal vaccine is now two shots, three shots. There's a lot of complications to this. So where does the Liberal Party stand on that? Yeah, look, I think the best thing to do on on this this kind of topic, even though I, you know, they're not necessarily uh, infallible, I think the best way is to be guided by public health expertise. And we are blessed in this province to have a ton of women and men who have been on the front lines of this from the very beginning, whether it's on the science table or elsewhere, to get that guidance. I've said this from the very beginning. We we as Ontario Liberals believe in in science. We believe in evidence based decision making. And I'm not a medical expert. I'm not an epidemiologist, but. But I am comfortable enough in my own skin to know what I don't know, Greg. Mm-hmm. And that's why I would want to rely on those who studied this, who understand it deeply and be guided by their advice. My point on this is you're not going to get a consensus from one doctor to another. Uh, if you've got a six year old that's had two shots since December and they've just come off having Omicron, you might have one doctor say, get them vaccinated anyway, blah, 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 blah. And you might have another say, absolutely not. Do not do that. Plus, there's no reason for a six-year-old to wear a mask anywhere if he's recovered from Omicron. There's no reason for it, okay? You'll have a doctor say that. You'll have another one say, oh, mask up. There's there's some mask zealots that, you know, it's, it's, the, last, it's the last hill they're ready to die on. So I don't know where that goes. I think that's a really difficult question and i don't love the answer because if you're going to mandate it and authorize it and say every kid has to have it well how many and when based on their last natural uh, immunity uh, acquisition via infection i think these are really complicated issues with regard to choice not non-choice um so we saw this about uh uh the return to the office and you and i've talked about this a bunch of times now i think this article has a certain slant to it and i may have bought into this slant but it was in the new york post last friday work anxiety is keeping people out of the office but how real is it and and i i take issue with this stat i maybe i'm maybe i'm getting too into this stat nine in ten employees say that their workplace stress affects their mental health. According to a 221 report from guess who? 
Mental Health America. I'm so surprised it was 9 out of 10 coming from Mental Health America. Not 2, not 4. Why are you skeptical about that? Because they're whole. They're, they're, it's a racket. That's a racket. It's Mental Health America. It's not Workplace America. It's not Office Chairs America. It's well, Mental wonder, Health America. I wonder what Workplace America would say that stat would be. Because it's, it's, it's still up there, Brady. First off, this is a white-collar job issue. We can agree with that, right? Transit workers, factory workers, retail food service, construction, all of these people have been working through the entire Non-stop. pandemic. You got it. Right. So white collar jobs don't want to go back, right? There's a hesitancy. You're not buying why they don't want to go back, uh, which we have to disagree on. But also, did you know that this week, the first week of May is mental health week in Canada? Did you know that? I didn't know that. No. So there is a huge focus on that this week. And I get it. I think you're being very judgmental. <laughs> Because people have developed serious mental health issues since this pandemic has begun. And you have to remember, a lot of these people in the very beginning, when we didn't know what was happening, they have lost people. Or they have seen people get very sick, or they themselves have been sick. Or they were already prone to anxiety, and this has just elevated it. So you have to have some empathy, don't you? I do. And after a cer- I, uh, that was understandable at a certain point in time. My thought is once you do, it's like doing anything in life that you have nerves about. I was thinking last night, even going to the concert, I had nerves. You have nerves when you you go to your first university class. I don't know why that was in my head yesterday. My first university class, big lecture hall at Western, how nervous I was. Any workplace, any new workplace, you're nervous here. Um, the uh, you know, it, I've only worked at three companies in 27 years, but you're nervous that first day. Will everybody like me? Will everybody treat me fairly? Can I make sure I treat everybody? Everybody fairly. So sure. people will get over those initial f- you, losing your virginity, getting married, becoming a parent, check, like check all these boxes. And there's nerves and panic and concern. But we don't not do these things. And, and we give it, it we're giving ready. these people an option. No. OK, look. No, we I, don't I do hear- them when we're ready. When you're pregnant, you're pregnant, and you got nine months to get your, your ass ready to be a parent, a dad or a mom. Yeah, sure. And then, but you, if it's and then you show up and you do it. If that pregnancy is unplanned, you're in emergency mode, right? Most people, not most, but many people try to plan that pregnancy. Anyways, my point is that you went to that concert last night, 2,600 people. I'm going to a concert next month uh, at the Scotiabank Arena. You and I are ready to get back out there. Not everybody is like us. I know a lot of people who think you were crazy to go to a ve- <laughs> an indoor venue with 2,600 people. But I understand where you're coming from. So it is becoming an issue. Companies are using incentives. Like, Free lunches, Taco Tuesdays, pizza-making afternoons. That's what a lot of companies are doing. Uh, free office fitness classes. They're trying anything and everything to, thing to remind okay, people. Okay, but wait a minute. I'm going to stop. I'm going to ask you. If you have legitimate anxiety, your, your brain is fried, you're panicked to step back in the workplace, and tacos are what pushes you over the line to bring no, you back, no. then you're, the- you're, you're, not, you're not for real. You're not these for incentives, real. No, these companies are trying to do anything and everything to remind people that human connection is valuable and it's healthy. That's what they're doing. So LifeWorks is a mental, social, and financial well-being company. And they're saying that it's going to have to be gradual and slow to get people to come back to the office. And then there's employee, employment lawyers. They're saying that uh, if you were hired to do a job that is in office then you have to come back to that job and you can be let go if you don't agree to come back for whatever reason. However, I mean, it's a red hot market right now. So a lot of people are saying, okay, well, I'm going to quit that job. I'm going to go start this job that agrees to let me work from home. So 
it's like it's a fine balance. You might lose that employee, a great employee, because they want to work from home. So you have to. A hi- I think a hybrid solution is the best way to go. I think I think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. And and if you can do the job to to the best of your ability with you know and not be in five days a week, uh, that's great. That's great. Let's find a solution here. But I would say, and we've talked about this. Somebody that does what you do or what I do, if I if I refuse, if I had had always refused, I'm like, I'm not coming back in. They have every right to let me go and look for somebody who needs to come in and perform. And I and don't perf- agree with that. With you and your position nope, as a radio host, I can't do it as well. I'm sorry, that's me. I, I, not everybody has to agree, but but it's a morning show. It's a lot of a lot of moving parts. I have to be here. I have to be here. Gord has to be here. I like I I I have to Why? be here. I don't I don't agree with you on that because I'm be- I'm better when I'm here. I'm better. That's I'm more you. focused. It's great that I can go up and get uh, make a put some peanut butter on some toast at at uh, at seven o'clock while I that's, hear Dave that's echoing you have two through my basement. At home. That's because you have two no, teenagers. No, wouldn't make at any. Home. No, she wouldn't make were, any difference. If you lived by yourself somewhere in a condo, which could or happen eventually if I keep talking like this. <laughs> now. Um, Sheba, Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles, an iconic venue. This wasn't any normal comedy club. Last night, uh, you, you saw this, Dave Chappelle on stage doing a set, and a guy jumped on stage and tackled him. It was nuts. So this was at a festival called Netflix is a Joke. Chappelle was on there. He was doing his entire bit. And then right at the end, this guy came up out of nowhere. He's wearing a hoodie. Nobody could see him. He charged Chappelle knocked him over and Chris Rock uh, was backstage with Jamie Foxx as well. They came running out to help Chappelle up that people chased after the guy. And here's what was said. Was that Will Smith? Did you catch that? Yes, I got that. Was that Will Smith? That was what Chris said into the microphone. (laughs) <laughs> Which I think that's hilarious. I uh yeah it, it's now remember also because the concept was two days maybe three days after all that Will Smith Chris Rock reaction was does this make it what was the comment like open season on stand up comedians yes on telling jokes that was a concern for a lot of comedians that's that's what came out of the Oscars that from Canadian so yeah. uh, don't you think there's two questions immediately being asked about this let, let the one question we would isolate is uh, to me did someone attack him randomly were they just drunk or stoned or is this somebody that has been upset or angry at Chappelle specifically about the uh, transphobic comments in the last Netflix show. You and I talked about that tons in the fall and what, how he should react and what Netflix would or wouldn't do. That was my first thought. Was first thought, regarding exactly. Regarding transphobic comments. So what they did was they did, there was a picture of the guy who attacked him being led out in a stretcher to the hospital. They had um, held him down. They got him. They found there he had a, a knife on him at the time as well. Are you serious? Yes. Yeah, so he didn't use it, but who knows? He was carrying it when he attacked him. Um, so he's in a stretcher and he looks to be uh, Latino. Uh, okay. I don't know what what the reason was for attacking me. It's all going to come out. But I mean, I'm, it's very scary to be a comedian on stage now. I mean, it's Will Smith has ruined it for all of them. Do you remember? Because um, this band is like close to my favorite band, uh, but Oasis, Noel Gallagher was attacked on stage here in Toronto. They played, they were playing somewhere on Toronto Island. And oh. uh, and a guy just jumped on stage and 
and he he just bumped him and attacked him. I've never like I, I can't figure out for the life of me why that happened. Sometimes you see people run on stage, right? Like and they but they want to hug the performer, right? Yeah. Or kiss the performer. Morrissey gets this all the or time. Or get up and dance like at a Bruce Springsteen concert. Yes. I and I got stopped trying to get on stage with OMD last night. Now <laughs> I feel like, I, you know, I, I can't really make a lot of vertical leaps in my uh, condition. My knees are bad, but I got halfway there and then got stopped. And then I got stomped. I got stopped and then stomped. But this is going to be a really interesting reaction from Dave Chappelle. Like, did the guy mutter anything on his way there? Did he say anything to somebody? Did somebody go to the show with him and say, yeah, he told us he was going to do that? Like, that- Yeah, we're going to find all this out. He did say one thing, though. After the chaos happened and people were screaming and yelling, Chabelle went to the microphone after Chris Rock's comment and he said, everybody compose themselves. I want this to be a peaceful moment. Yeah. So let's see what comes out in the aftermath of this. It's yeah. awful, though. It's awful. This is not the way to deal this, it's not the way to deal with anything. This is why I told you I hate the, that the boxy match on Saturday night with the two women. I hate I hate seeing that. I hate violence of any kind. Don't do it. There are other ways to solve things. Here's my pro- you, you know the phrase I don't like uh, uh, among many words are violence. I don't like it. I, I words can be offensive. Words can wound and hurt. Absolutely. Violence is violence. Words yes. are words. And, yes. and words can be terrible. I think words. Some people saying certain words and sentences and having certain offensive beliefs shouldn't get airtime. They shouldn't be in workplaces. They there. And there are some things that you say that couldn't be considered illegal, but when you jump on stage and attack somebody, that's what violence is. And if you, if you play this parallel and a lot of people do it, words are violence. Everybody stuff like this ends up being inevitable. No. Yeah, it does. It, it, you end up. Oh yeah. Oh, I agree. But I mean, try punching someone in the face when they say like, like that. No, I don't recommend that, but I'm saying <laughs> a punch in the face is very different from telling you off. Yeah. Or saying something very, you know, offensive to you. It's, it's, no, you can't, it's like, what and, would, and ha- both are damaging. Both are damaging. I mean, actions, you know, it's, 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 what is it? Sticks and stones. Well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, now again, like if, now if Dave Chappelle, I think this is interesting and a listener just brought this up. If Dave Chappelle was the one on the stretcher and Dave Chappelle had a very serious injury, let's even say a knife wound, mm. what would we be doing? Like we, we'd say, well, we need safeguards and we got to, Oh, I think that's coming now because of this. I think that now with comedians, they won't be as accessible. You can't, they're going to need way more security. Absolutely. But I also think there's a discrepancy between how women view violence and how men. You're right. And they should. And and it's like, I didn't know this the other day. I had actually gone into my husband's Netflix profile uh, and I didn't realize I wasn't in mine. And he has a category that I didn't know existed on Netflix called extremely violent movies. And I, was I like, like your what husband you so much uh, already then. No, I'm like, what? I didn't even know that existed on Netflix. I'm like, what are you watching on? And it was so much violence. <laughs> and he loves it, whereas I can't even be in the same room. This is uh, so Quentin Tarantino's his, uh, his hero. That's, that's probably I, his guy. I don't, know. His I don't guy. know what he watches. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today. Back with a live show tomorrow between 5.30 and 9 a.m. You can hear us on the Radio Player Canada app or at 640toronto.com. Thanks again for listening.